0: This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.
1: For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Four officials in McCurtain County in southeast Oklahoma are coming under fire for racist and hateful comments made on tape after a county meeting. District 2 Commissioner Mark Jennings has since resigned, while Governor Stitt has also called for the resignations of Sheriff Kevin Clardy, Investigator Alicia Manning, and Jail Administrator Larry Hendricks after the audio was released. The sheriff says the recording is faked and was recorded illegally. Ryan, what's going on here?
2: Well, first and foremost, uh, you know, you know, share with the, my my fellow Oklahomans just the uh, being and, and being appalled at at what's happening here. Um, I think a lot of folks will say that there's no surprise that these comments happen all the time and they're just not recorded. Uh, I I don't doubt that that is the case in, in in some instances, but here we have it on we have it on record and we know exactly what was said and we know that it was said in the context of a public meeting. Um, you know, this is uh, and, and you know, there's So many takeaways here. Uh, The first is that, you know, the sheriff's claim that this was, um, you know, basically fake news uh, is outrageous on its face. Uh, I mean, this guy should be drafting his resignation letter uh, and also should probably be talking to an attorney. Uh, He should not be on Facebook saying that this is uh, that the person that made the recording is subject to criminal prosecution. That's just, again, outrageous. Uh, This was an open meeting uh, by, by any and all accounts. And you know, even if even if they weren't aware that it was being taped, uh, they had no reasonable expectation of privacy in that room at all. They were public officers, public employees, uh, having you know talking about county business, uh, albeit in just you know very disgusting uh, and reprehensible ways. The second takeaway that I'll, I'll you know I think is is very important is this is why it's so important to have local newspapers uh, and local journalism because. If we did not have local journalists in McCurtain County that knew that if they didn't record this that this would never come to light um, they knew this because they're reporters on the ground uh, they, they're talking to folks they know their sources they know what's happening in their county and they knew what they needed to do to get the story and they got it um, if if we continue to go down this road where local papers are bought you know by you know, large you know either statewide or oftentimes national conglomerates, that have no grounding in local communities, we're going to continue to, you know, these stories like this are going to be missed. So this is local journalism and why it's so important.
1: Neva?
0: Absolutely. To follow up on exactly what you said, Ryan, I mean, first of all, this uh, Southeastern... County, McCurtain County, now at the center of really this what's become a nationwide controversy. I mean, it's been on every news outlet, been reported uh, far and wide uh, this week uh, across the country. And this particular paper, the McCurtain News Gazette, uh, which is a local print-only newspaper. And I think that's important because I'm sure a lot of folks have probably Googled that paper after they've heard or read accounts and maybe wanted to see what the paper was actually saying, only to find that there's no online version, which is a rarity, even among still locally owned papers. But this is a publishing family that has lived in McCurtain County for 120 years. Hmm. The family has Long been well regarded. They've had the paper for 40 years, and this particular instance with the recording is really is really kind of uh, on the back end of this storyline. I mean, what really has occurred, and I think would be interesting to the listeners, is is the fact that this really stemmed from a six month investigation uh, that the reporter. Uh, had ongoing, so it began in late uh, 2021, went into 2022 and it was an eight-part investigation with really the sheriff and the sheriff's office and many of the the, the folks that we're talking about right now involved. And out of that, I mean, there, there were stories talking about um, emergency jail trust meetings, uh, uh, the homicide investigations that had been tainted, um, questions on the propriety of some of the uh, hirings and firings, and on and on. And out of that, what you had is a federal lawsuit filed by the, by this reporter uh, that basically uh, outlines many things. And out of that, you know what we what we have is the folks that were named basically. Uh, appear to have blown it off. I mean, they they made no response during the prescribed period of time. There's another lawsuit uh, that uh, has been filed by Chris Willingham uh, in county court against the sheriff's office over uh, requests on a question, uh, a death Uh, In the uh, jail uh, under the sheriff's custody last year. So this this goes on and on and on. And when you really begin to kind of hear this and read this, you see that there's so much more there. And frankly, it wasn't a surprise to me that there was an emergency meeting uh, uh, this week after all of this really came to light after the governor. Uh, made his call for the resignations of these folks. The Sheriff's Association had an emergency meeting on Tuesday, voted unanimously uh, to to suspend uh, Sheriff Clardy, the investigator Manning and the trust administrator, Larry Hendricks. So um, there's a lot more to come on this. Um, Yeah, I think it's interesting that one of the things in in the lawsuit that was brought out was the fact that there had been efforts by these folks uh, to Uh, be able to subpoena the reporter's phone to try to figure out who the folks were that were leaking or giving information, and some of whom um, ostensibly may have been in some of those early firings after, after these changes took place in the jail administration. So it's a mess. It's, and certainly, I mean, when you think about all of the things that came out in the recording, all of the implications and just the, the negative uh, that comes to the community that they have to deal with, in addition to this family run newspaper, um, it's, it needs to be sorted out quickly. The fact that you're right, Ryan, it appears the sheriff and the administrator and the investigator are digging in, and there certainly hasn't been any talk of resignations from those folks, but I think we're going to see a lot more pressure. The, the okay. reporter said the FBI has been uh, uh, talked to for a number of months. Uh, certainly the attorney general's office uh, acknowledged this week that they are investigating. So I would think this is going to be ramped up and uh, front and center, and hopefully they'll get some resolution to some measure uh, beyond whatever the, the the court side of it is, uh, very quickly for all concerned in Ida Bell and McCurtain County.
2: A couple of real quick points. Um, you know, the I think it's important to point out that after this revelation, there were a lot of folks uh, from Ida Bell and around McCurtain County that showed up to protest uh, and showed up to, to uh, register their disappointment and their disgust with what their elected officials had done. So, you know, there's I think that, you know, I, I hope that not everyone in McCurtain County and Ida Bell uh, they're get you know painted with the same brush because they were immediately out there saying this is disgusting and doesn't represent the values that we want. Second thing is thank goodness for the First Amendment. Uh, it is not self-executing. It takes reporters and journalists that are brave, that are willing to run these stories, publications willing to print them, and lawyers willing to defend them. So you know, thank goodness for the First Amendment. And everybody that's out there working to make sure that it's got teeth to it.
1: The state Senate has overridden the veto by Governor Stitt of Senate Bill 1130. The bill took $600 million of accumulated federal money from an account of the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority and designated as part of the agency's FY 2024 appropriation, with the rest to come in the general appropriation bill. It hasn't been heard in the House yet to override the veto, but Diva, why would the governor veto this measure?
0: Well, it, it's an interesting fight. Uh, I mean, it's a fight over half a billion dollars, basically. I mean, the governor, the governor's contention is in his veto message a couple of things that he pushed out there. One that uh, he said that the bill punishes the healthcare authority for fiscal conservatism and and uh, stewardship, you know, of the taxpayer money. But let's remember these dollars that came in. Were were pan, pandemic related. I mean, they were supposed to be for states to have extra money for Medicaid services, um, and instead, what the state did and the healthcare authority is that they uh, put these funds in a, basically a, a special fund or a rainy day uh, fund for some future use. Now we have, um, you know, we have basically the Senate Appropriations Chair coming out and challenging part of the governor's veto message where he said that, you know, at least the least that the legislature legislature should do is just wait until um, certain things take place and, and including uh, cleaning up uh, the Medicaid rolls post-pandemic and some of those things. And, and frankly, uh, Senate Appropriations Chair Roger Thompson just basically outright refuted that and said that uh, this has been taken care of President Pro Tem Treat, I mean, he was even more harsh in his words for the governor. He said that the governor's veto message was, uh, I think his, his words were offensively inaccurate. So, I mean, they they in less than 24 hours after the veto, they overrode in the Senate with a 45 to two vote. So, I mean, that's strong. Mm-hmm. And now I think the, uh, the onus is on uh, the uh, House to see what they're going to do. And when you listen to some of the statements that have been made this week, after even after the uh, override by the uh, chair of the House Appropriations and, and Budget Subcommittee, Marcus McIntyre, he, he basically piled on as well and raised a lot of questions. And so I think it's a fight from the legislature's perspective of, they should be in control of the money. The governor says uh, that the healthcare authority should be in control of the money, be able to decide where it's spent. That's a lot of money and it's worth a fight over, clearly by lawmakers and the governor uh, and his agency uh, that's in, in involved in this right now, which is the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority. So it's gonna be a fascinating fight. Will the house override? Or will it be part of some, you know, negotiation between now and over the weekend, first of the week, and will something else transpire? Um, You know, there's so many things mired up, not only in these dollars, but the fact that they are seeing really, from all accounts I hear, no real movement on the education compromise, any kind of work on the education bill, and that the budget process is basically also at a stalemate, so uh, a lot of intrigue, but a lot of uh, a lot of big questions that have to be decided, and the clock's ticking.
1: Ryan. You know,
2: Republicans control every statewide office. They have enormous majorities uh, that allow them to you know basically do whatever they want uh, in the state legislature without uh, oftentimes without any input from the Democratic minorities and either the Senate or the House. Uh, but even in a unified government like this, where you have you know one party rule, you still have these tensions between institutions. Uh, in this case, the the legislature versus the executive, and that's a healthy tension. I mean, that that's exactly uh, you know why we have these co-equal branches of government that are set up uh, so that you you can have these checks and balances. And, and the legislative branch right now is saying, you know, it it wasn't the healthcare care authorities' uh, prerogative. They did not have uh, they did not have instructions from the legislature to save this money to create a savings account uh, to think about how they would spend this money for years to come without any real direction or, uh, uh, you know, any blueprints that the legislature gave them. Uh, and that's, uh, I think that it, it makes a lot of sense that the legislature is saying, no, that's our power. Our power is to decide how the money is going to be spent. Our power is to decide where it's going to be appropriated in the first place. Um, you know, I think that the healthcare authority and, uh, and the governor's office right now um, you know, even though the governor, you know, vetoed this, and I, you know, I, I, I assume that he knew from the outset that it was going to be overridden, uh, but he vetoed it as, as a way to, you know, flex the uh, the executive muscle. Um, but even then, I think that the healthcare authority can look at this as a win because if the legislature had wanted to, I believe that they had the 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 power under the Constitution to take that entire six hundred million dollars and spend it somewhere else and um, that's, that's not happening right now. Uh, that, that, was, that doesn't ever have seemed to really been on the table. Uh, the $600 million, most certainly after these veto overrides, will be appropriated back to the health uh, care authority in, in some capacity, if, if not all of it, um, would, would be my bet. So, I mean, that's, that's a win for the healthcare authority, uh, but the legislature just wants to be able to say, you know, we're, we're the architects here. Uh, we give you these blueprints, and you follow these blueprints and uh, without that uh, then you're basically giving you know the executive branch and the various agencies uh, the ability to make their own decisions and once that happens we lose the benefit of checks and balances among our co-equal branches.
0: I think that's right and and I think your the question of who a winner is at this point I think is still up for debate because what we have is a situation where we don't have a budget yet. So these these legislators uh, have the prerogative to do a lot of things with these agencies in terms of what their final budgets are going to look like. So the give and take of uh, the negotiations, not only on the budget side, but this fight over this particular bill, Senate bill, and this veto, and whether or not it'll be an override next week in the House, I think a lot of people were surprised that there wasn't quick action in the House, just as there had been in the Senate. So it does raise some questions on, you know, will there be an override in both chambers? So it'll be an interesting thing to watch next week.
1: Oklahoma inks a deal with Panasonic to build a new electric vehicle plant at the Mid-America Industrial Park in Pryor. But a dispute over $245 million in site work around the area means the agreement isn't a done deal yet. Ryan, what are leaders saying about this uh, agreement?
2: Well, among the Republican leaders in the legislature, there seem to be at least, you know, tacit signals that they are willing to make these investments. But uh, as we've talked about earlier on the program, there's no budget deal right now, uh, yeah, and so you know, saying that the legislature, that the House and the Senate can come to an agreement that right now, uh, at you know, at this moment on you know April 20th and you know uh, April 21st, that the legislature can commit 245 million dollars to anything, uh, I think is very premature. So uh, they they have indicated that it's something that they're interested in. I thought that uh, the Democratic leader in the House, uh, Cindy Munson's comments were were interesting, and, and also congratulations to Leader Munson. She was just reelected uh, as the Democratic leader for the for the Democratic Caucus in the House. Uh, but you know, one of the things that she said was, "Well, they're asking for infrastructure investments. Panasonic's asking for infrastructure investments, and that's one of the things that uh, the Democratic Caucus has been talking about for a very long time. It's it's not so much uh, this idea that." Uh, we can move away from you know giving uh, these huge tax incentives or these huge tax breaks. I think legislative leaders were right to say that's the game. And you know if we're going to be competitive for these for these big manufacturing plants, then that's one of the things that if you're going to do that, you've got to be willing to do these other things. But. You know, frankly, the 245 million dollars in, in infrastructure investment is something that you know, shouldn't be a surprise to lawmakers. Uh, you know, these are infrastructure investments that we need to be making. We need to be making them on an ongoing basis, uh, and we also need to be investing in our people and uh, workforce development and education. Um, in the long in the long run, uh, you're going to get large employers uh, to move to our state because. You know, even even with tax incentives, we've got to be competitive with these other states and we've got to have the workforce that's here. We've got to have a, an infrastructure uh, that's ready to to welcome them and support those jobs and uh, in that industry. And we also had also have to have a, uh, a culture that is welcoming and open uh, to everyone and that you know, that there are employees that many of them will be hired here in Oklahoma, but others that they're going to bring from around the country and potentially around the world uh, to, to prior Oklahoma uh, or in sites around the state. Those folks need to feel like they and their families are welcome whenever they come to Oklahoma.
1: Neva?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the, the clock was ticking down on uh, being able to use the $698 million, get this deal done with uh, Panasonic. And as you say, Ryan, I mean, it's it's largely understood that there, there are going to be um, certain costs, infrastructure improvements, site development, all of those things. But the kicker uh, appears to be that, in this contract between the state and Panasonic, it does stipulate that the governor has to sign into law by June 1st. After the, assuming everything happens and they get their budget done, and uh, uh, by June 1st, this 245 million dollar appropriation has to has to be locked in and solid. And we had the speaker. And his folks basically saying, look, a couple of days before, you know, when we were reviewing this contract, uh, before the uh, kind of the ink was dry, they raised the question uh, of the fact that that it was the speaker's assertion that the state statute says very clearly that the state cannot encumber any money in any agreement that has a binding contract. And he said that uh, in this instance, uh the contract with panasonic is not is not uh without contingency. so um there's i mean there's some real rub there obviously there's the opportunity to work it out the commerce folks have been uh, uh from all indications working non-stop trying to uh, make sure that uh, these funds were there the governors uh, contention has been, look, Panasonic never walked away. It's always been about a two-state deal. In fact, he even said in his news conference last Friday, I believe it was, that it was not only about uh, uh, adding Oklahoma as the second state, but that within, you know, a very short span of time, there would be two additional states probably online with the uh, similar type manufacturing uh, operations. So uh, it's, you know, it's a big deal, in terms of the impact um, from the standpoint of the dollars coming into the state, the jobs coming into the state, but you still have to work. And you're right, Ryan. I mean, here we are with Republicans. Uh, we have it all. I mean, we have the super majorities in the legislature. We have the elected uh, officials statewide. And at some point, I mean, um, some of this headbanging and kind of uh, inability to really strike some uh some better deals up front without more holes in in the deal than uh, Swiss cheese is a problem. And so I think we'll we'll be it will be interesting to see um, they've got to ramp up the budget negotiations and it'll be interesting to see how all of these things kind of kind of fold in together and what kind of resolution we ultimately see.
1: Governor Sid is disbanding the state's interagency Council on homelessness. The council was formed in 2004 by governor Brad Henry Stitt says he's looking to shrink state government, but supporters of the council say it leaves Oklahoma without a statewide strategy for addressing homelessness. Ryan, how important is this panel?
2: I think it's critically important. You know, if we look at homelessness uh, around the state that, you know, we've seen enormous increases. Uh, If if you live in Oklahoma City uh, in particular, I mean, you you know where homeless encampments are at. You know that you know more and more of our fellow Oklahomans and, and others that have been, been stranded here because of their uh, inability to find housing um, are you know struggling. Uh, it, it's become commonplace now. Whenever there's a severe weather event, um, that in addition to everything else that we're thinking about, um, and of course, you know, our hearts go out to everybody that was affected by the tornadoes this week. But you know, th- these are people that have had their homes hit. Well, if you don't have a home to go to. Uh, in the first place, where's your shelter at? If it's going to be below freezing, where do you go? Um, and these are these are very real problems. These are people's lives. Uh, I think uh, the idea that anyone is living uh, without shelter because they have, would just rather not have a job, or because they're lazy, or because they won't, uh, you know, do what's best for them, uh, I think that that's just ridiculous. I think that it it, it ignores the the many underlying problems that lead a person to uh, become homeless in the first place, and if if you if you talk to and and know people that are either uh, homeless right now uh, or have been, uh, many of them never thought that they were going to end up in that situation, uh, and you know nobody sits around and they're thinking, oh well. You know in five years i'm not going to have a place uh with a roof over my head uh it it often happens you know very suddenly to individuals and then once it happens it's so difficult difficult to climb out of that and the number one thing that we can do for those folks is housing um and the city of oklahoma city uh has a has a project right now that uh, follow some successful models of uh, cities like Dallas and Houston. I think Houston followed a, a similar model in trying to make more affordable housing available to individuals, and they cut their homelessness population by 60% in, in Houston. Um, but it's not just a city problem. You know, this can't be solved by Norman or Oklahoma City or Tulsa. And you can go to rural communities now. You're, you're going to see homelessness in, in rural communities uh, in areas that you never would have uh, uh, seen in, in the past. Um, and so this is this is a statewide problem. And uh, you know, shrinking government. This didn't cost the government anything. There was there were zero dollars uh, that were appropriated or allocated uh, to this group of individuals who have an expertise and a commitment to uh, making the the uh, the lives of these individuals and their families, and uh, you know oftentimes young children and and, and ill individuals, uh, uh, physically and mental health issues. Uh, making their lives just measurably better, and they are all coming together to work on that. Um, the idea that you know that we can just do without this, to me, is uh, it's a real shame, uh, and I think it's probably going to set the collaborative efforts back. I, but I will say this: I bet that the, in, the individuals and in the, or, in the organizations that were involved uh, in the council before is disbanded. They're going to continue to work on this, uh, but it, it sure makes a difference if you do it under uh, the auspices of state government.
1: Neither.
0: I think in in this instance, uh, you're right, Ryan. I mean, when you have a governor's council, uh, interagency council on homelessness, I mean, that is a vehicle that does um, make it generally more likely that you'll have – People come together and be able to be collaborative, be able to identify barriers to housing, be able to uh, uh, either cooperate or coordinate uh, work on grants, and the list goes on and on. So, I mean, the governor uh, basically ended something that was an executive order that was under Governor Brad Henry uh, when he set it up under, uh, under his administration, it looks like when you listen to the comments that the governor made, I mean, he said basically that building housing and giving people free stuff is not the answer. And his his answer is is that he wants to see the issue of homelessness addressed by churches and nonprofits and groups like that that are already trying to meet some of the demand. The flip side of that, obviously, from a government standpoint, is at the national level, I mean, his his philosophy on this is certainly diametrically opposed to what's going on in Washington, where I think HUD has uh, almost $3 billion that they're awarding uh, in homelessness funding across the country. So, I mean, there's a lot of money out there to be utilized and whether or not Oklahoma will be the beneficiary. I think uh, it now becomes more incumbent upon these uh, communities, uh, large and small, like you say, because every community virtually nowadays is affected. The big numbers, the skyrocketing numbers in Oklahoma City and Tulsa in the last uh, five or six years certainly have been talked about a lot. And I think we've seen a we're seeing a lot more uh, dedicated effort. Tulsa, in particular, I think you have got a a Republican mayor in G T. Bynum. Uh, he formed his own task force uh, last year with with the uh, of the idea of focusing on a long-term strategy for dealing with homelessness. Um, You've got Representative Monroe Nichols from uh, Tulsa, who has become really a champion on uh, affordable housing, at-risk housing, a lot of the things that he's focused on. And interestingly, some of that legislation is still live rounds and moving through the legislature. Uh, His bill um, uh, made it out of the House and um, I think made it out of the Senate Finance Committee this week, so it could potentially make it to a, a Senate vote, and that bill doubles, I think, from like more than doubles, four million to ten million uh, affordable housing, you know, op- uh, money opportunities. So you've got you've got folks in Oklahoma City and in Tulsa that uh, you know are certainly talking and focusing on this. The perspective from the governor's standpoint, uh, he made a decision to eliminate this council so it doesn't eliminate the need or the work. It will just move to other areas uh, to be done.
1: The House Speaker says State Superintendent Ryan Walters is rejecting a call to appear before lawmakers. House Appropriations and Budget Subcommittee on Education Chairman Mark McBride invited the superintendent to appear before the panel to answer questions about the Department of Education's operations and statements by Walters about pornography in school libraries. Neva, why would Walters want to actively snub the legislature?
0: Good question. I think a lot of people would like to hear that answer from uh, Superintendent Walters, but uh, he twisted this around uh, in his uh uh re- response to the request from the house uh and the and and basically said that uh you know that porn had been talked to death uh, he had taken action uh and there and he wasn't going to basically engage uh with these folks that wanted to do political grandstanding which seems to be exactly what he's doing in his response but unfortunately when we talk about the idea of any agency head or any member of the of, of state government not responding to a to a f- official request from one of the chambers to come before a committee to talk to them respectfully and engage in answering questions is uh, I, I can't I can't think of a time where uh, either the house or Senate has been in this place and the fact that you know even though, Uh, The opportunity to subpoena is there. I mean, they could they could issue a subpoena. They could send the troopers out. They could bring him over. They could have the meeting. But it's in some of the comments made by Speaker McCall this week. It it gave some indication that he really wasn't sure, you know, he needed or wanted it to go that far. Um, I think it's still an open question what's going to happen, but it's not going to happen politely and on on. uh, a response from superintendent Walters of just coming in and doing what he's been asked to do. So, um, I, I, I think this session for, uh, Ryan Walters has been nothing but a rocky one, uh, whether the, he can reset the mark. And, and I think some of what may or may not happen is probably contingent upon what happens with education I and mean, what kind of bill ultimately comes out, whether school choice is, uh, You know, the proponents and many of those folks who um, worked hard to get him elected, whether they see some results in the legislature or what their um, temperament and demeanor is moving forward. uh, There are there are a lot of questions, but it's disappointing for any elected official to take this response. And, um, you know, hopefully maybe he'll um, think better of it and decide to come before the committee rather than take swipes by having his chief by having his spokesperson Uh, take a swipe at the at the committee chair unnecessary uh, and beneath the dignity of the office
1: right
2: well neva you know uh, superintendent walters uh, isn't very good at thinking better of things so uh, i i I don't think that he's going to be changing his position here And, and michael to answer your question of why he wouldn't appear at the outset i think he's afraid i think that he feels comfortable and secure when he's on TikTok. I think that he feels uh, protected and brave whenever his spokesperson is taking you know, very undignified and unnecessary swipes uh, at Chairman McBride and, and other state legislators and, and questioning their motives uh, for even asking him to come uh, and appear before the legislature. This doesn't all have to do with uh, his, his Superintendent Walter's you know, ridiculous claims and, and comments Uh, and and just, you know, seeming fixation uh, with with pornography. This has to do with very basic uh, issues of who does a lawmaker call at the uh, State Department of Education whenever they've got an issue with a constituent. Um, They don't even know who to call. Uh, They don't know, you know, uh, they can't get callbacks. They, They get disconnected whenever they've been on hold. You know, these are just really basic questions. You know, we can leave aside all of the the uh the campaign antics that uh the superintendent Walters has uh you know wrapped himself in from the moment that he was uh announced as a candidate and then uh has been you know sworn in in this in this current position this is this is a, a man who is um i think just petrified of the idea of sitting in front of a committee uh without the insulation of his staff without the insulation of his you know tiktok core supporters that are there to try to you know, protect him whenever somebody makes a negative comment and to attack those that make negative comments against him, uh, and to have to answer questions directly from lawmakers of both parties. Um, and, and many of them, again, just very simple questions about the operation of the State Department of Education right now. Uh, it has it has nothing to do with the campaign rhetoric. It's just what are you doing? Who is in charge? What decisions are being made? Um, and and that's that's where we're at right now. i I think that it will take a subpoena to get him in front of a House committee. Uh, I think that the as as much as the House probably wants to avoid that, um, I, I think that from a perspective of uh, preserving the power of the legislature uh, in this instance, to uh, compel a member of the executive branch to show up, I think that they have to do this. Mm-hmm. I think that if they don't do this, uh, they cede a great deal of their legislative authority and their checks and balances, and their and their authority in the checks and balances system that we've got uh, to the executive branch. If they don't, so I imagine that there's some lawyer uh, on House staff right now that is uh, you know either googling or, or looking through old uh, files trying to find a subpoena form that they can that they can you know make make fit for this particular circumstance because. Neva, as you said, I, I don't know and, and could not uh, think and I've asked others if they could think of another instance where this has ever got to this point with any other elected official, uh, statewide elected official that's refused um, uh, a legislative committee's request for them to appear and testify.
0: And when you think about the State Department of Education, we're talking about the agency, the department that has the largest appropriations mm-hmm. of state dollars i mean the largest appropriations the most significant impact in, in and to have the head of that department uh not willing to talk to lawmakers when they're when they're in the beginning of forging and crafting budgets um i i think it puts the entire you know it puts the entire state department of education in a, in a real a real difficult spot because he is in charge and he is going to, at some point, be required to engage with these lawmakers on, on specific conversations about specific programs, specific dollars, federal dollars. I mean, all of that that comes together, I mean, in this budgetary process, and whether he feels up to the task or whether he needs to uh, um, get his team shored up to be able to answer those questions and engage in that dialogue. I mean, um, it's a it's a it's an unfortunate uh, series of events that have happened surrounding the the superintendents surrounding this all that has gone on in these conversations and to try to continue to twist and turn and not really address what Oklahomans want to see and that is business taken care of at the state capitol and in these agencies and departments. Um, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see what uh, what that looks like in terms of numbers when we when we kind of the dust settles and people rethink, you know where we're at in state government and specifically in education. And so uh, there, there's obvious room for disagreements on all of these things, even in these education bills that have gotten you know clustered and not able to really forge any kind of consensus yet there's room, but he appears to be the, the person who doesn't want to engage in that conversation in a significant way, and that's very regrettable.
1: Orion well, Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at
0: donate.kosu.org. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.